Well, good morning. I'm not Jesse. I'm better looking than Jesse. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're all not Jesse here today. Jesse is probably fishing or doing something that Jesse wants to do. So, my name is Jim Watanabe. I am the only Watanabe in the Golden Triangle area, except for my wife and my kids. Uh, but uh, that's a name that's not found. It's not a good Cajun name, I'll just say that. Anyway, it is an honor and a privilege to be here today with you. So, a little bit about me. I'm married to Melanie back there. That's my wife. And my children are all back there. She's put up with me for 26 years. I don't know how she's done it, but she did. Uh, Gabby's, uh, the Gabby, she's that, that keyboard player over there. That's my, that's my girl. She kind of looks like me. They all kind of look like me, but that's okay. Anyway, uh, a little bit about me. I'm not from here. I'm from Spokane, Washington. Some people know where that is. It's way... You go to California, take a right, head north, and you'll get there eventually. Uh, I was born and raised there, went to school there, went to seminary in Portland, Oregon, and then I was put into the... I was in the United States Army, which brought me down to Fort Hood, or Fort Cavazos now. Doesn't matter. Anyway, and that's where I met Melanie. Um, and... Uh, I got out of the military and then became a, a ministry in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for 22 years. That is a place where it's dark, uh, your nightmares are kept there, but there is a light in a dark, dark place. So, you know, just because we put people there doesn't mean that Jesus is not there. Jesus is there. And I know a lot of your brothers would say to you, good morning, and sisters, and I work. I had the privilege of working with both men and women from all levels of society or all levels of custody. That means from what we call a trustee or a camper all the way up to the guys who'll never see the light of day again. So I've been there. And then recently, I mean, I, I retired in 2018, and uh, I've been uh, doing pulpit supply out at Providence Church. That's up on. You probably seen my name up on the marquee up there if you go up and down. Uh, Twin City Highway. I've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff, but they finally called a new pastor. So they said, thank you very much for allowing me to be with them and uh, ministering to them in their time of need. And this is one thing I really like about Jesse. And Jesse says that we're not in a competition with any church. Amen. We're not here to show off people and show them up and show and say how much better we are. We're all about serving and we're all about lifting Jesus up. And so I really don't care, and as a chaplain, I didn't care if you were a Baptist or a Methodist or Church of Christ or whatever stripe of Christian you want to call yourself. As long as you are living that life, then I have no problem with you. Amen? Because we're, we're, the, we're the body of Christ, and we need to be united, especially in this time. So uh, a couple weeks back, Jesse said, hey, Brother Jim, can you, uh, can you, can you pitch, uh, can, you, can, you, can you do the pitch hitting for me? Oh, by the way, I'm an Astros fan. Go Astros, we won last night. Yeah, that was a Grand Slam. Did you see the Grand Slam? Oh, that was wonderful. Grand Slam home run. Man, that was that, that's a thing of beauty. And then the next inning, we they gave up, or a couple innings later, they gave up five runs. It's like, how did you do that? But anyway, uh, you know, when I got down here, I didn't really particularly care for baseball, but that was one of the stipulations that my mother-in-law said, that I had to like one Texas team, and that would be the Astros. And so I said, go Astros! <laughs> Uh, you know, and she said, I didn't have to care. I didn't have to, I didn't have to like the Cowboys. And I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I was talking to Jesse and Jesse says, okay, so what are you going to preach on? I said, hmm, how, how about 
vague messianic prophecies as found in the Jewish Apocrypha. Now, I'm being silly, and Jesse's eyes start glowing. I'm thinking, this guy really thinks I'm going to do that. <laughs> uh, no, 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 Jesse, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just saying stuff. Or how about the proper pronunciation of the Akkadian Aleph as opposed to the uh, historical and ancient Hebrew Aleph? That's the A. And how that can really stimulate your spiritual life. Uh, I'm thinking, no, no. So anyway, uh, I, I just thought that was funny. That I'm thinking, I'm, this is funny, and Jesse's eyes are glowing. And you, you guys know, when I, Jesse's eyes start glowing, yeah, he's nerding out, okay? Yeah, he, he's doing that kind of stuff. I said, oh, whoa, whoa, calm down, Jesse, calm down. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm in Romans 12 today. And so, you know, I look around in this world, and I'm pretty sure that you all do. You don't, you're not a bunch of ostriches with your head stuck into the ground. And we read and we look at the local news and the world news, and we see that the world is pretty much upside down. It doesn't make any sense, and it makes us angry about all the stuff that's going on. And I said it before, and I'll say it again, this world is not where we were meant to be. You know, we're in the book of Romans, so I'm going to bring some Roman stuff up here. The Roman word for revolution was res nove. You know what that means? New things. Their word for revolution was new things. Uh, the Romans were, in, in, in pretty much in effect, they were a conservative bunch. They didn't like a lot of new things. I mean, if it worked for granddad, and if it worked for great granddad, it's going to work for us, right? Okay, so we don't, you know, we don't change a horse rider's midstream. If it ain't broke, we don't have to fix it, you know, and, and that's the way they were. Now, you think about it. Uh, well, another thing is, I'm not going to give a lecture on Roman society in the Empire Age, even though as much as, as Jesse would like me to do that, I could just see his eyes starting glowing there too. Uh, but one thing I do know, the Roman Empire lasted from uh, 753 B.C. to 1453 A.D. That's an awful long time for an empire or for a group of people to last, amen? That's because they didn't change things up. You know, again, if it worked for Grandpa, it's going to work for me. They don't change things. As a whole, the Romans as a whole did not like radical change, and it shows by the longevity of the empire. Yet we live in a world of constant change, thanks to our technology, and we love technology. And I wonder, but I wonder sometimes if that's really a good thing to have. I think we all wonder that at times. So I'm not really saying anything that y'all haven't uh, seen or heard about or thought about. You know, and I look around at what's going on today, this, this generation, uh, I kind of scratch my head, and it seems that they're being blown around by every, uh, every strange idea and doctrine that comes around, and they seem to anchor their beliefs on the ever-changing sins, and that they just can't see that that's what they're doing. I'm not slamming this next generation. I'm not at all. I'm just saying this is what I'm seeing. Anyway, I'm not going to focus on what's wrong with the world because we all know it. We all see it. We all read about it. We all hear about it. We all watch the news, and we see it's just really depressing, isn't it? It's depressing. So let's focus on what we're supposed to be doing. So let's turn in our scriptures to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read the whole thing. Not the whole book of Romans, it's Romans 12. And he says this, Paul, 
He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern that, that what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more, than, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And so we, though many are in one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, then in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve in the Lord, or serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a lot to go through today. And I know, and I know that you all are really excited about that. Now, I did learn this in seminary, and from one of my mentors said, the attention span of the congregation is directly proportional to how tired the rear end gets. So the more tired your rear end gets, the, st the smaller your attention span gets. So, uh, you know, I used to start preaching for 45 minutes, and I was told that that's too long, so I, and I cut it back a little bit so we could beat the Baptist to Lubies, right? <laughs> Amen. Or to, uh, or to McAllister's or to, you know, La, uh, La Cantina. <laughs> I kind of wonder where I'm going to lunch today. Anyway. One of my seminary professors who wrote a book about um, uh, the book of Romans, he said, if you want to find it, you'll find it in the book of Romans. Romans was Paul's magnum opus on theology. This book alone shows, shows Paul's sincerity and his brilliance as a theologian. Paul was not stupid. The Epistles of Roman is the sixth book in the New Testament and the longest of the 13 of Pauline or the Pauline epistles. Now, the epistles is not the wife of an apostle, right? We get that? Okay. 
I know that's an old joke that pastors tell. The other old joke is turn to the book of Hezekiah. We all know that there is no book of Hezekiah, but we try to catch people. Biblical scholars agree that it was composed by Paul and the, Paul the Apostle to explain that salvation is offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans was likely written while Paul was staying in the house of Gaius in Corinth. The epistle was probably transcribed by Paul's amnuensis. Don't you like big fancy theological words, amnuensis? It kind of flows off the tongue there. Uh, 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 his name was uh, Tertius. And is dated in late in late AD 55 and maybe early 57, consisting of 16 chapters. Prior to the composing of the epistle, Paul had evangelized areas surrounding the Aegean Sea and was eager to take the gospel even further into Spain. Remember, Spain was a province of the Roman Empire at that time. In fact, actually, here's a bit of free t- free tidbit of of uh, of um, a free tidbit of. Uh, Useless trivia. The best steel came from Spain, by the way. In Toledo, best best steel. Anyway, okay, just I know I, I collect things in my in my brain, and I know I see people are kind of like squinting and looking at me like, huh? What's he saying? Okay, uh, but anyway, he wanted to go to Spain and he wanted to visit Rome along the way. The epistle can con- can consequently be understood as a document outlining his reasons for the trip and preparing the church in Rome for his visit. Christians in Rome would have been both Jewish and Gentile in background. We know that by the end of the first century, there were 25 house churches in the, in, in the Roman area. Three are in Rome, and there were three of them were Messianic. The rest were either slaves, former slaves, lower class. There were some higher, uh, higher level people there. Um, you know, this one, this is an aside too. When people say, we got to get back to the original church, I have to look at them and say, which one? There were a lot of different little churches running around. And there wasn't really one big church. It wasn't. It was, there were a lot of little churches running around. And how they looked at things, well, depended upon your, your position in society. Pretty much like today, amen? I mean, you know, you have your highbrow crowd uh, in, in the downtown area. They're, 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 they're very wealthy, and they, they look at the world differently than, say, uh, you know, the Hispanic uh, Pentecostal church down the road. They come from a different background altogether. They all love Jesus, but they look at things differently. Amen? We look at things differently than the church in Africa. We do. That's our culture. Anyway, they were Jewish and Gentile in their background, and it's possible the church suffered from internal strife because of two groups. Paul, a Hellenistic Jew and a former Pharisee, shifts his arguments to cater to both audiences and the church as a whole, because the work contains material intended for both specific recipients as well as a general Christian public in Rome. Scholars have had difficulty categorizing it either as a public, a private letter or a public reading. Now, the Bishop Anglican Bishop, Anglican is like Episcopalians, they're from England, okay. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, he's, he was a sound theologian. He says this about the book of Romans, neither a a systematic theology nor a summary of Paul's life work, but it is by common consent his masterpiece. It dwarfs most of his other writings, an alpine peak towering over hills and villages. Not all onlookers have viewed it in the same light uh, or from the same angle, Uh, and their snapshots and paintings of it are sometimes remarkably unalike. 
Not all climbers have taken the same route up its sheer sides, and there is frequent disagreement as to the best approach. What nobody doubts is that we, are he that we here are dealing with the work of massive substance, presenting a formidable and intellectual challenge while offering a breathtaking theological and spiritual vision. So basically what N.T. Wright was saying, the book of Romans is a big mountain, and there's uh, you know, different ways up the top of the mountain, and not everybody's going to have the same opinion. Amen? That makes sense. Enough said about the book, and I will add that there are literally a ton of books about this book, and enough to choke every theologian around. I mean, my seminary professor wrote a book about Romans. If you want to make your name in the church, write a book about the book of Romans, and you know people will buy it. People still buy books, don't they? Yeah. I was telling Matt Moe this morning, I said, you know, when I went to seminary, you know, I mean, when, well, today when I work on a sermon, I have this. I have the Blue Letter Bible, which has, uh, you know, it has its concordance, it has its interlinears, it has, uh, it, it has Thayer's, and it has Strong's, it, it has a lot of stuff. When I was back in the day, at the time, of, at the dawn of time, we had books. So when sermon prep for me was, I had my lexicons, I had my interlinears, I had uh, my concordances, and I mean, my table was just stacked with books. You know, and I'm thinking, man, I wish I had, I wish I had what I have now because it makes it so much easier. Also, when I started in seminary, I had a manual typewriter. Remember, you old folks, you remember the old manual typewriter? And I did the hunt and peck method. Yeah, and then you get faster at it, you know. So, I mean, you guys have so much cool stuff. We have so much cool stuff nowadays. But anyway, the first thing he says is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we read this, the question that popped into my, my mind was, what, does a, what is a living sacrifice? What does it look like? I mean, a living sacrifice is kind of like an oxymoron, really. I mean, living and sacrifice. Usually a sacrifice is something that we kill, or back in the old days we would kill and, you know, and burn and offer up the incense to God, whatever. Though so he said, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And I'm thinking, what does that mean? Are we supposed to crawl upon the altar and ignite ourselves? Is that what Paul was saying? I don't think so. I know. Yeah, that's really a weak argument there. Okay, I get it. Well, I think that's foolish. But anyway, so I, uh, folks have taken this to the extreme, and they actually do things like that. Like in the Philippines, when it's Easter time or Resurrection Sunday, they have people crucifying themselves. <clears throat> We've seen this on National Geographic. We hear about that in the news. Yeah, they, they do weird things like that. And that's not what is meant by a living sacrifice, I think. But people have done some pretty wild, thing, wild things. Here's something that I found in history, like the Desert Fathers. We call them the Desert Fathers. There were a bunch of strange guys in Egypt, and they would go and sit on a pole looking for the revelation of God and God to fill them. And so they'd be, I mean, they'd be sitting on a pole. I'm not kidding. This is what they would do. Or folks going out and living in caves. Anyway, and people have been living in caves forever. But anyway, so what are we supposed to look like? What are we, as a living sacrifice, supposed to look like? What does that look like? And that kind of fired up my imagination. And Paul takes the rest of the chapter to explain just what he has written. 
He says this, this is our spiritual worship. Worship is much more than singing songs, even though singing songs is a wonderful thing, and it's a great thing. That is only a part of worship, amen? Okay, it's not just singing a bunch of songs and getting a blissed out look on Sunday morning going like this. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. Worshiping Jesus means you place worth on who Jesus is, worth-ship, what you place value upon. That's worship. You, you value Jesus and what Jesus did and what, who Jesus was. That, when, when you put ultimate worth on him, that's what you worship. I've seen guys worship their Corvettes. I've seen guys worship their job. I've seen people worship money, uh, all types of stuff, because they put the, the, their emphasis on, lo- on their life on those things. Amen? Okay, so... Having a blissed out look and singing songs is not all of worship. It's part of it. And he says, secondly, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, there's a lot that can be said there, but I don't have the time to do that. But as a Christian, we are to be different from the rest of the world. Amen? We are to look differently. We are to be different. We need to keep ourselves in the world because we are of the world, but we're not, you know, we're in the world, but we're not of it. The Jews have something known as what's known as cash root or the word kosher. Have you ever heard that word kosher? All that means in Hebrew is clean. Now, these kosher laws were set up to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. We are different, and this is how we're going to be different. We're going to do things differently than the Gentiles. Okay, so if you ever look on the packaging of food, sometimes you'll see a, a circle U. Have you ever seen that? That means it's kosher. Or a star K. Next time you buy something and look at it, uh, you'll look and say, well, okay, it means it's kosher. That means if you're a Jewish person or following the Jewish dietary laws, you can eat that with confidence knowing that it's kosher. But even then, people think kosher is just about the food. No, it's not. Wow, really? Yeah, it's like um, Tide. Did you know that Tide is kosher? Do you eat Tide detergent? Now, I've heard some people trying to smell, you know, kind of snort that stuff or trying to eat the pods, but no. Tide is kosher because it's not just what goes in the body, it's what you wear on the body, what type of clothes you wear, the type of, uh, you know, what type of... Uh, uh, that the clothes is made of, you know, you can't mix certain things. Uh, you know, Jews do not eat, do not mix meat and milk together. Now, that's that's their laws. It's not found in the scriptures, but they think it is. But it's not really not. Uh, so, you know, you can't have a cheeseburger because you're mi- mixing meat and milk. That's just what they do. Uh, so they they want to be different. How they dress? Have you ever looked at a cooktop and you'll see a little K up on 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 the cooktop? How you cook, the thing utensils you cook with, the you know the, the 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 linen that you sleep on, all must be kosher if you're really observant. So that was God's way of telling the people of Israel, you've got to be different. Well, Paul says pretty much we as Christians are going to be different as a living sacrifice. We are to be different. A little weird. Okay, a whole lot weird compared to what's going on out there. We should not look like the world, amen? So anyway, uh, 
well-meaning Christians think, uh, what did I write here? It says, well-meaning Christians sometimes think that we need to eat kosher. Uh, I disagree with that. Just Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him clean or unclean. It's what comes out makes him clean or unclean. Uh, you know, plus I like bacon and shrimp. Did you know that you can't eat bacon as, as a Jewish person, nor can you have shrimp or oysters? I can understand about the oysters. And Jew, uh, and Cajuns are probably going to be the worst Jewish people in the world because we'll eat almost anything that crawls. Am I right? Red, yeah, mud bugs? Yeah, we eat that. You know, alligator? Yeah, we eat that. You know, shrimp? Oh, yeah, we can't go without life without eating shrimp. Oysters? Yeah, we eat that. Yeah, they would be horrible Jews. Okay. Cajuns are going to be the worst kosher Jews ever. So anyway, uh, so how do we be separate without, without being kosher? For by the grace given to me, I say that to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Okay, so we're to be humble and to think of others as better than yourself. I know for some of us that's really hard. I know that for me it's really hard, and I see my wife over there smiling because she knows that I'm, I can be pretty prideful and arrogant at times, uh, especially when the time when I said I really don't have any vices. And it's like, yeah, you just don't know, do you? Okay. But humility is to be a trademark of a Christian. Humility. Nobody likes arrogant people anyway right? We really don't. We really don't care about them. But humility is to be one of the things of a living sacrifice, to think of others as better than yourself. That's what Paul is saying. So when we have an opportunity to crow about yourself, we shouldn't do that. We should have an opportunity to lift other people up. Amen? Okay. I say amen. Pastors say that a lot too. Uh, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us then, if prophecy, let us use them if prophecy in the proportion of our faith, in service in the serving, and the one who teaches in teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads this with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what Paul is saying here is whatever you're doing in the church, do it to the best of your ability. Uh, you know, years ago, uh, and I remember this, the um, spiritual gifts inventories came out. Uh, you know, the, it's just like a personality inventory. I, I was never a big fan of that, and I know a lot of churches buy in that because they say, you've got to find out what your spiritual gift is, right? So when you find out what your spiritual gift is, like Christmas morning, you open the box, and then you'll see, oh, my, my spiritual gift. I don't think God works that way. I think that the way it's supposed to be is whatever you're good at doing, do it. If you're good at being uh, being hospitable, then do it. If you're good at fixing things, do it for the glory of God. If you're good at uh, you know cooking, do it for the glory of God. That is your gift. Use it for the glory of God. Use it for the church and the edification of the church. You don't have to take an inventory to figure out what you're good at, right? You just do it. That's what Nike says. Just do it. You know, if you put, you know, if baseball is your thing, uh, then do it. Just play as best as you can. Do it as hard as you can. That's what we're talking about. We don't need to take tests. We just do it. Amen. Okay. Amen. Okay. So um, I'm going to read this again, and I'm not going to add commentary because these are self-explanatory, and we'll let. And we'd like to do this as well. He says, let love be genuine. 
Okay, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Are we doing that? I think in a great deal, we are doing that. Pat yourself on the back. We are doing a good job. We are doing what Christ told us to do. So I'm not beating you on, unless you're not doing those things, and yes, I'm stepping on your feet. And that's okay. I've got boots on today, so I can step all I want. Outdo one another in showing honor. Are we doing that today? Yes. You know, we buy the donuts. We love on each other. We, we greet each other. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's what a living sacrifice is. That's what we should be doing. Amen? Those things. So we're to be loving on one another. We are to you know, abhor evil. We don't, you know, we're not going to go do the bad things. We're not going to be doing that. We are, instead of doing that, we are loving on one another. We are loving on other churches. We're doing what Christ calls us to do. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You know, back in the, I, so a lot of times I relate things back to my ministry in the prison. And I remember one time an inmate came up to me, he said, you know, chaplain, if it wasn't for the Christians in this place, this place would be a really bad place. Because we're the ones who keep the peace. We're the ones who actually follow the rules. We're the ones that help out. And I talked to my warden about that. I said, you realize it's the Christians that keep the peace in this institution. You know, you look at all the other groups, they weren't about peace. They were about what they could get or what they could do, but the Christians were about serving one another and loving one another. And, you know, the other thing I found out in prison is that the world is like a fishbowl. Now, in prison, I tell the guys, I said, yeah, you can come to chapel on Sunday morning and look all holy, but we see what you're doing for the rest of the week. You can't just come to church on Sunday and then live like a demon for the rest of the week, doing all the things that you shouldn't be doing, because you know what? We all see what you're doing, and honestly, we're not really impressed, and I don't think God is impressed by an act. You know, there's, uh, you know, the thing about Christianity is that we can't go through the motions. A lot of us, me included, sometimes we go through the motions. We pretend that everything is okay. We pretend that we know what we're doing. We pretend, but we're not really being what we're supposed to be, be, be doing. We're just going through the motions. You know, the thing is, is that, and this is really important, we don't play a part in Christianity. We are the part in Christianity. Don't play Christian, be Christian. Amen? The world hates hypocrites, and, every, and everyone out there knows, exact, knows more about Christianity than we know it, but that's one of the things that we're faulted for is that we are hypocrites, that we play at being Christians, but we're not really serious about being Christians. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what the whole scripture is saying is that we must be Christians. Amen? This is how we are to be Christians. It's not in, in, in theological purity. It's not seeking after those things. It's seeking in loving one another. And when I say loving, that means agape, 
And we all know the word agape. I think every pastor since Jesus has talked about what agape is. So I'm going to tell you again what I think, well, what agape is. It's doing what is best for those you love, whether they want it or not. Amen? So like if your best friend is playing on a railroad track and you see the train coming, what are you going to do? Oh, gee, I, I can't, I, I, I don't want her to get mad at me, so I, I won't say nothing. No, you're not going to do that. You're going to push her off the track. She might be mad, or she or he might be mad at you, right? They might be really mad. They may never talk to you again, but you know what? You saved your life. That is loving on one another. That means take, doing what is best, what is right. And as a church, we should be doing that. And you know what? We are doing it. We could always do more. But we're doing it, and that's a wonderful thing. So, you know, a lot of pastors want to spank the church and beat the sheep and things like this. I'm saying, no, you guys are doing a great job. You guys are out in the community. I love the crossovers because that's what we're called to do, amen? We're not called here to just sit on our rear ends and and getting filled spiritually and then walking out and doing whatever we want for the rest of the week. No. He says, bless those who persecute you. That's hard, isn't it? Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. That's when you really know that you know you're a Christian. When you can say, when you can bless other people, those who are being mean to you or persecuting you. Oh, by the way, when you say God bless, God, God bless you, what does that mean? When you say God bless you to somebody, especially to someone who's vexing you, what does that mean? It means I want God to do what is best for you. If you have, if God has got to take you through the fire, then so be it. Because the greatest blessing is salvation in Jesus Christ. So when I say God bless you, you know what I'm saying? God, do whatever is necessary to bring this person to you. Sometimes, a lot of times you may not want to do that because it hurts. But anyway, it says, bless those who do not curse and, and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We do that, and we're good. Live in harmony with one another, and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's something that we need to work on. Amen? We, we shouldn't be prideful or haughty, but we're supposed to associate with the lowly and never be wise in our own sight. Again, nobody likes a know-it-all, and that's me. I, I'm a know-it-all, so everybody should not like me, right? Okay. Anyway, um, don't be a know-it-all. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do what is right. Do what is honorable. That is what a living sacrifice is. And how are we on time, by the way? I can preach on for another hour? No? Okay. So it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Hard words. Living sacrifice. Living sacrifice means that we give things up. We give up malice and hatred. We give up jealousy. We give up pride. We give up those things that tear us down and those things that slow us down and weight us down. And we sacrifice those things. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay so how many of times have you all wanted to, you, you wanted vengeance? 
Yeah, I, I want you to suffer, man. I want you to crawl on, the gra- on glass, and I want you to come to me begging for forgiveness, and maybe in my generosity, I will forgive you. No, it doesn't work that way. Our Father is a lot bigger than all of us. Heaven help the man or woman who messes with a child of God, because guess what? We're his kids, and Daddy is always watching. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And I loved when we had the little go bags that you kept in your car. So when you see someone homeless or someone who's in need, you, you know you can give them some food, you can give them some socks, or give them something that they need. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you will heap burning clothes on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we are to be separate from the world. We are to be kosher. But on the other hand, we are not to, you know, and that's not just the food that we are supposed to eat. It's how we live in our society. We are known to be different. Christianity in the early days, was revolutionary. It was a new thing in in Rome. And it caught on like wildfire because there were many people who were outcasts. They were slaves. Slavery was a whole different world. In fact, the whole Roman world worked on slavery. And it was telling people that you have worth, that God loves you, that this, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Women, especially women, uh, it was revolutionary how men were supposed to treat women. Did you know that? Did you know that? Back in the day, in that Roman day, if a woman had offended her husband, if she had done something wrong, he had the right to kill her and and the children if they were not respectful. Christianity said, no, no, women are co-equal. We are equal in salvation. We are so equal in so many other things. Guess what? That was revolutionary for women who were oppressed, for men and women who were oppressed as slaves, as people who had no hope. The gospel of Jesus brought hope. And they turned around, and they turned, and it says in the scriptures that these disciples turned the world upside down. They literally did that. It was a revolution, and we're to be that. We're not too far off from what Rome was today, and we are to be different. We are to be a light in the hill. We are to be, we're to be different. And I think in many ways, that's what attracts people to hear. It's not the fancy preaching. It's the relationships that you all build out there. It's what brings people in here. They hear that Carpenter's Way is a good place to be. It's a non-judgmental place. It's a place where you will find acceptance and love. Guess what? That's what brings people to church. Amen? I mean, you know, if you're here to hear me preach, uh, you're going to be disappointed anyway. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not the great theological purity. It's, it's not preaching great sermons. It's the love that we have for one another. Many years ago, when I first came down to this area, we, uh, I picked a church that we were going to go attend, and the reason why I picked it was is people remembered my name. That's it. People remembered who I was. I came one week, they shook my hand, and I came back the next week, and they said, you're Jim. 
We remember you. Yeah, you, you were out at the prison. Yeah. And I was just flabbergasted. I mean, how, much, how, how many of you like people knowing your name, knowing that you're here, loving that you're here today with them? Amen? That's an important thing. Is it time to go? Oh, okay. My timekeeper is up there. So I just want to leave you with that. Don't play the part. Be the part. Be. That's the living sacrifice. Be, not play. Amen? Let us stand. The one thing is when you have a preacher preaching, he can go for hours and hours and hours, and everyone's kind of rolling their eyes and saying, it's time to go eat. Okay, let us pray. God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we ask your blessings on us this week. Lord, help us to be the people you want us to be. Help us to love one another. Help us to walk in humility. Help us, Father God, to be what you want us, to go where you want us. We pray for those divine opportunities this next week. We pray that you'd open our eyes, that we might see that, that we might love on one another with those opportunities. Lord, we pray that your blessings be with us always. And in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. And do we have the...